Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that our lives are not spent chasing after the wind. We praise you for being a God who completed the work necessary for our salvation in Jesus Christ. We praise you for being a God who gives us good work to do. We praise you for being a God who's gathered his people from the four corners of the earth and saved us by grace and left us here, Lord, that we might serve you faithfully all of our days. We ask, Lord, for your grace to be poured out on us this morning, that we might hear the words of Kohelet and see that which is true and that which is not. Help us to see, Lord, the work that Christ has completed on our behalf and the work that you still have called us to do. We want to be faithful workers, faithful laborers in this garden in which you have placed us. And so we ask that you would bless us this morning with wisdom and knowledge and joy in Christ. In his name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were paying attention, you probably could tell from the songs and the readings and the prayers that Coalette is going after work. And he's going, to make, he's going to make a run at labor to see whether or not he can find true meaning and true joy in that. Former President Theodore Roosevelt, he once said this about work. He said, no man needs sympathy because he has to work, because he has a burden to carry. Far and away, listen, the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. The best prize, Mr. Roosevelt says, and I would argue that in our cultural moment, many have believed that. Many are chasing after work and labor and the fruit of that, namely income and property and clothes and cars, in order to find this ultimate prize, this best prize. Coalette's not buying it. The author of Ecclesiastes, the sage who was seeking meaning and purpose and eternal joy, has tried this, and he says, No, Mr. Roosevelt, Mr. President, you are wrong. We do not find lasting joy and peace in our work. If you've been with us, he's gone after a few things already. He started after wisdom and knowledge. He chased after that, and he said, That doesn't provide the meaning I'm looking for. It doesn't give me the purpose and satisfaction. Last week, he went after self-indulgence. He went after wine, creativity, possessions, Money, music, sex, he tried it, tried it all to an infinite degree, and this was his conclusion. Look at verse 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you're not there, please open your Bibles. He said, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he tried wisdom and knowledge, he tried self-indulgence, and he's standing there looking upon mankind, and he sees man working. We're moving, we're a very busy, busy people. And he says to himself, maybe it's work. It's not wisdom. It's not knowledge. It's not self-indulgence. Maybe man's meaning and purpose can be found in his labor under the sun, his vocation. And so I want to join Colette this morning. I don't want to go to the library and look for wisdom. And I don't want to go to the bar and look for self-indulgence. I want us this morning to grab our time cards. And I want to punch him with Colette and see if we can find true meaning and true purpose and eternal joy in our jobs, in the workplace. Now, but don't laugh yet because some of you are thinking, well, I can tell you right now the answer to that. Most of us can. But let's, let's give Colette the benefit of the doubt. And let's see whether or not there, there's anything we can glean from his teachings. I want to show you three types of works that we see from this passage. 
Number one, working under the sun. Number two, working outside the garden. And number three, working inside of Christ. So we're going to look at work under the sun, work outside the garden, and work inside Christ. Number one, work under the sun. One of the things you got to love about Colette is this man is not bashful. He tells you how he feels. Look at verse 18. He says, I hate work. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. I hate it. He says, listen, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I go to work every day. I can't stand it. I can't stand staring at my computer screen. I can't stand changing those diapers all day long. I can't stand the grocery shopping. I can't stand sitting in traffic. I can't stand serving people. Colette says, I'm with you. If you said, you know what? I don't even want to go to work tomorrow. I don't have to. It's a holiday, but I got to go on Tuesday. Colette's with you. But now I want you to know this. He doesn't say he hates work because he's lazy or he's unskilled or even unsuccessful. In verse 9, we're told he became great and surpassed all who were before him in Jerusalem. So this was a very successful laborer under the sun, relatively speaking. He hated work because of death. He hated work because death took away everything that he would earn, all his profit, all his earnings. And he goes so far as to say, death is so bad that it makes work evil. I want to show you four things from these verses very quickly on his perception of work. Look at verse 18 again. He said, I I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And so he says, listen, I hate my work because I can't take my stuff with me. He wasn't Egyptian. He wasn't like the pharaohs who took all their possessions and put them in the tomb. He says, listen, I know when I die, I die. I don't take my house. I don't take my car. I don't take any of my earnings. My 401k stays here. He says, I hate that. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a fantastic parable about a rich landowner. Listen, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20 of Luke 12. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Colette understood that it's going to go to someone else other than himself. And because of that, he says, I hate it. Not only do I hate that it's going to go to someone else, I can't control who that someone else is going to be. Look at verse 19. Second reason that he hates work. He says, and who, who knows whether he, the, the recipient of all his hard work, whether he will be wise or a fool. Yes, Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And so he says, I can't stand the fact that all my stuff's going to go to someone else. And I can't stand the fact that I can't control who that someone else is. I mean, they may take my estate and do wonderful things with it. And my legacy may go on. Or they may be utterly foolish and squander all my hard work and ruin my name. And he says, I'm powerless to make a decision as to who that will be. And therefore, he says, my work now becomes toilsome, weary. It is vanity. 25 years ago, I restored my first Mustang, a 1966 coupe. And I restored it to a candy apple red, black interior, beautiful car. It took me about three years. 
I had a former student who was graduating from, uh, from our program at De Anza, and his mom wanted to, I was selling my car, she wanted to buy the car for her son. And I recommended, I said, this is not a car you should buy for your 18-year-old son. She said, no, I really want to, and I pressed her against it. She pressed me. She said, are you not going to sell me the car? I said, I will sell you the car. So I sold her the car. She gave it to her son, and within a year, he had totaled the car. Three years of work, gone to a fool. How many presidents have left their office only to find their successor undoing their legacy? We read much about that right now. How many great coaches have stepped down after years of forming a successful program only to have their successor come in and within a year or two decimate the program? Can't control who takes over. He gives us a third reason. Look at verse 20. Colette says, So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Verse 21, Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So he moves from, from hatred to despair to calling this very thing labor and the profit of our labor evil because he can't fathom the thought of it going to someone who did not earn it, someone who he believes does not deserve it. He says, I can't take it with me I can't control who takes it after me, and I can't stand the thought that someone's going to benefit from all my hard work, all my wisdom, and they're going to get it for free. They're not going to earn it. Now, he's likely not talking about a son or a daughter who will inherit. He's likely talking about someone who will come in and take it from his family. Maybe the government who will take your death tax and take your property from you. And he's saying, this is not fair. This is what we would call riding on someone else's coattails. Have you heard that phrase before? If you've ever been in a small group in school, you know, in those small groups of five or six students, it's always one or two who carry the group and they get the grade for the entire group. That's why the students who are not so good always look around for the A students and say, uh, uh, can I be in your group? Because they know they will carry the weight. Or maybe at work you've been assigned to a team and you've worked on that project with the team and it was a team effort, but you pulled most of the weight. And so that credit went to the team, or maybe your supervisor took credit for the work that you did. Colette says, this is not only unfair. He says, this is, he calls it evil. He calls it a great evil, having my entire state go to someone who did not earn it. He gives us one more reason, which I think we can really identify with. Look at verse 22. He says, you know what, it's just, it's just hard. I mean, let's just speak simply. Works hard. It's toilsome. Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even the night his heart does not rest, this also is vanity. When you hear the word vexation, there's an extreme hatred for it. There's an extreme suffering here in the work. And he concludes, I think, what most of us can identify with, that work is hard. It is toilsome working under the sun. Much physical exertion, much mental exertion. So much so that we can't even rest at night from the work that we did that day. How many of you are, are anxious at night? Give me a quick, just show of hands. How many of you do that at night? I do. I'm horrible at it. I think about the work that I did not get done that day. Or I think about the work that I have to do tomorrow. And the very night I'm supposed to be resting from my work, I'm anxious and not resting. Colette said, this is horrible. Sorrow, grief, pain, suffering. For what? For that end of the year bonus? 
for that promotion, to get that new office with that nice chair. How many hours in traffic have you spent chasing after the wind? How many late night projects? How many anxious nights lying in your bed thinking, will I have my job tomorrow? Will I be laid off tomorrow? Will I be able to pay my bills tomorrow? Colette says, this is vexing. This day in, day out wears on my soul. And I would argue it's the monotony of it at times and it's the, it's the prolonged nature of work over your entire life that really gets to us. Most of us can endure hard work for a season. You say, you know what? I got you on this six-month project. Go hard. You say, I'll go hard. But at the end of the six months, you know it's going to die down a bit. Homemakers, is it not diaper number 926 that gets you? I mean, 925, you're okay, but it was that 926 diaper. You said, enough diapers. Was it not? Is it not 568th trip to the store to buy the groceries, to make the food that the children will eat, and you have to go again tomorrow? Daily dishes, daily laundry, weekly bills, they have to be paid. I think more than a few of us have said over the years, it's enough, especially if you're older. I'm a little tired. I've had more than a few people say to me, you know, it must be, it must be fantastic. You get to spend so much time during the week studying and praying and writing. And it is an incredible blessing. But it's said as though it's not toilsome. As though it's not hard each week sitting and reading and thinking and writing and praying and preparing to do this Sunday after Sunday, year after year after year. It's still work. Glorious work indeed, but it's still work. I, it doesn't matter what your job is or how much you love your job. Year after year after year, you hear Colette and you go, Colette is right. There's a vexing nature to this. No matter how much you love your job or how productive you think your job is or how glorifying it is to God, there's an aspect to it that is hard. And so Colette says, vanity of vanities, work a necessary but ultimately meaningless pursuit. This is his conclusion. We will not conclude the same. We cannot conclude the same because the Bible speaks otherwise. But we must admit that he is right when he looks at work and he says there are aspects of work that's just really hard. I don't think anybody who's ever worked any period of time, even a small period of time, would not agree with that statement. There's a burdensome quality to work. So the question I had is, why is that the case? Why is that the case? I don't hear people talking about how vexing vacation is. I don't hear people saying, you know, it's so burdensome when I have to take a long weekend, like Memorial Day weekend, and maybe get a chance to take a nap on a Monday afternoon. It's so vexing. It's so troublesome to me. No one talks like that. Why is that the case with work? Point number two, working outside the garden. Working outside the garden. We know from Genesis that work was given before the fall. Work was given, commanded by God to man as a blessing before the fall. Six days God created, and on day six, he creates man in his image to work. To work. Listen, this is from Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us, speaking of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's your trinity in the Old Testament, begins in chapter 1 of Genesis, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may what? They may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. To rule, to fill, to subdue, those are calls to work. You don't believe me. He says then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it and to keep it. This is all before the fall. This is before sin came in. So work is given to us by God. We are created in his image to do work. And so before sin came in, this is a most glorious thing. In fact, one of the first things that God had Adam do was what? He brought all the animals. He says, name them. He says, name them. He gave Adam the authority to name all of the animals. The animals created by God, now named by Noah. And he, whatever, Noah, I mean, whatever Adam named, he kept. He didn't change a single name, not according to the word of God. So we are commissioned to rule over, to subdue, to work, to keep the garden. You say, well, that doesn't mean that, that work wasn't burdensome. We know it was because God then says he looked upon all that he created and he said, it is very good. He looked upon creation. He looked upon the structure of creation. He looked upon the work that he gave man to do and all the assignments he gave all the animals to do. And he said, this is very good, meaning it is perfect. It is without sin. And that means work before the fall was perfect. It was without sin. You're wired to work. You're wired to create. You're wired to build and to dream, and to grow civilization and culture. You're wired. You are. We're wired to write and make music. We're wired to enjoy music. We're wired to, to become civilizations. This is how God made us, and he said it is very good. And so we must know this. Listen closely. The burdensome nature of work that you experienced that Colette talked about is not a result of God creating work. Okay? Your struggle with work is a product of the fall. It is a product of our sin. Something went wrong. Colette's right. He looks upon work and he says, I see it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and this is not the work I experience on a Monday morning after 30 years. Something went wrong. In fact, you read Ecclesiastes 2 and you say, that, that sounds more like my work than Genesis chapter 2. This sounds more realistic to me. Whether you're in, in the home in the office, in school, or in your backyard, you know that there's an aspect to work that is just toilsome. You say, where'd that come from? Genesis chapter 3 is where it came from. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. And part of the punishment for the rebellion was a curse. That curse was made against Adam. Listen, this is from Genesis chapter 3. God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall eat bread till you return to the ground. You say, well, I thought he was just talking about farming. I thought he was just talking about soil. When you hear the context soil, he's talking about all work. All labor after the fall of Adam and Eve now has become toilsome, burdensome, painful. It is a consequence of our sin. And so I want you to begin thinking like that. 
When you're struggling with work, I want you to know that struggle is because of ourselves. It's because of what we've done in our rebellion against God. Before the fall, there was no need for vacation. There was no need for a long weekend. I mean, we didn't pine away for Memorial Day. We didn't say, when is Labor Day coming? When is Christmas break? We didn't need this because all work was pleasurable. After the fall, it becomes what? It becomes painful. It becomes filled with thorns and thistles. You say, what are those thorns and thistles? You ever worked for a hard-headed manager? A micromanaging supervisor who looks over all the details, always hovering, always critical, always complaining? Maybe those colleagues who are supposed to be doing the work with you, but they're not because they're lazy. They show up late. They leave early. They don't get the work done, and you carry that load. Late nights, early mornings, the horrible uncertainty of it all. Our labor will be by the sweat of our faces. Difficult, long, monotonous work. One of the boys asked me, few months back, how many jobs I've had. And I said, well, going for, how far back? I said, when, when was the first time you were paid by someone other than your parents? And I said, well, I was delivering newspapers and mowing lawns at 12. They said, okay, how many jobs have you had since you were 12? And I had to sit back and count them. So in 39 years, I've had 19 jobs. 19 jobs. And I thought, wow, man, that just makes me tired thinking about that. 19 jobs, I, from scooping ice cream to making pizzas to driving buses to cleaning parking lots. And, and, and many of those jobs I enjoyed, but they were all, to a degree, toilsome. They all had aspects that I, you know, I didn't want to get up at 2 in the morning and go clean a parking lot. That was a bit vexing at times. Why is it like that? It's like that because of our sin. It's like that because we rebelled against God, and he placed that curse upon us. Colette was right We weren't meant to die. We weren't meant to work and work and then lose all that we worked for. We were meant to work and enjoy the profit of our labor forever. So he gets that right. We were meant to to work without sorrow. We were meant to work without anxiety in the middle of the night thinking about, am I going to have my job tomorrow? That's how it was supposed to be in the beginning, before we rebelled, before we sinned. And so Cole says, I have some counsel for you. Here's the counsel. Look at verse 24. For those of us working outside the garden, he said, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, when Colette says there is nothing better, he's not, he's not offering us the purpose to life. He's not saying, Here's the great joy. Okay? When he's saying there's nothing better, he says it three other times, Ecclesiastes 3.12, verse 22, and Ecclesiastes 8.15. He's essentially saying, you know what, we, we got to resign to the fact that this is the way it is. When he says there's nothing better, he says, we have to surrender. This is a, if you can't beat him, join him. If you can't beat him, then carpe diem, seize the day. Enjoy what you do because you're going to die right? You're going to die. It's all going to end. So go to school, get good grades, get married, have children, be productive, do the best you can, because in the end, you can't take it with you. This is a fatalistic counsel. This is not counsel that we necessarily want to latch on to. Now, even though we would argue it's not the most sound counsel in the world, look at verse 24 again. He says, this enjoyment is from the hand of God. Verse 25, for apart from him, who can eat 
or who can have enjoyment. And so he's right there. On the one hand, he says, God is a joy giver. So if you can eat and drink and be merry and you can go to work and have joy, you got to recognize that's because of God. God's given you the ability to be joyful in the midst of a very difficult life. I don't know how good I am at this. I oftentimes will complain when I think about my labors. I'll oftentimes look at my neighbor and think, why does why he got it better? Why has he got so much time off? Why isn't he working as hard as me? Or I think about the things that I do not have. How blessed you are, my beloved, if you are those who enjoy your life in the midst of even difficult circumstances. How blessed you are if you go to work and your work is hard and your work is laborious and you rejoice. If you do rejoice, Colette says, that's because of God. God's given you the ability to sit down and enjoy a meal and rejoice over it. If you can sit in traffic, instead of getting angry like me, you say, I'm thankful that I'm in traffic to go to a job that I have. That's because of God. If you are someone who you work late and you make the deadline, instead of complaining that you have to work late to make the deadline, you're thankful you have a deadline to make because that's putting food on the table and clothes on your back. Buying groceries, making dinner, doing the dishes joyfully. I'll say that again, joyfully. Because you have food to buy and dishes to do because you're eating. So Colette gets this right. He says, listen, if you got joy in it, that's a gift from God. And he says, rightly rejoice. But there's something else here that's a little more subtle that I want to show you. He is simultaneously ascribing to God the nature of an arbitrary judge. Look at verse 26. He said, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting. And so on the one hand, Colette gets it right. He says, if you can eat and drink and enjoy your work, that's a gift from God. He said, rejoice over that. He said, but there's another aspect of this. This God gives arbitrarily to whom he so pleases, to the ones who please him. He doesn't give to everyone. Colette, and we'll see this as we move through the book, Colette realizes or at least thinks that he's not one of those. He's not one who receives the wisdom and knowledge and joy from God. His writings indicate that. And therefore, there's this sense of skepticism that this God really is good for all people. And so we've seen at this point in time, we've seen what it's like to work under the sun. It's hard. We've seen why we work the way we do outside the garden. That's because of our own sin. It's toilsome. I want to show you one more before I close. Colette's counsel to eat, drink, and enjoy your work. Is that the best counsel to follow? Is that the only counsel that we can hear? I don't believe so. I believe that, that he actually gives us a much better answer in verse 26, which corresponds with the rest of the Bible. And that would be working inside Christ. Point number three, working inside Christ. In the Gospel of John, As the Jews are plotting to kill Jesus, Caiaphas, the high priest, makes this most profound and prophetic statement. Speaking to the Sanhedrin, this is John 11, verse 50, Caiaphas says, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. 
Caiaphas was plotting to kill Christ, and yet out of his own mouth, he spoke the most profound truth known to man, that Jesus Christ would die for sinners. I think that Colette falls into a very similar situation here. In verse 26, Colette is accusing God of being whimsical or arbitrary in in blessing some and not blessing others. And unwittingly, he actually gives us the answer on how to know true joy. Look at verse 26 again. He said, For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business, the busyness of the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. What was it that Colette was looking for? Wisdom, knowledge, and joy. This is what he's pursuing in this entire quest all throughout Ecclesiastes. And he says here that God does give that to those who please him. He doesn't to the sinner. He withholds it to those who remain in their sins and will not turn to God and will not trust in God. He says they're going to toil. And whatever they make is going to be given to someone else. There's a parable that reminds me of that. If it is true, and I believe he's right here, that God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to those who please him, then the consummate question is what? How do you please God? If God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to those who please him, then we want to take Colette's statement in 26 and say, all right, then how do I please God? Because I want wisdom, I want knowledge, I want joy that never goes away. I want to know that. The Bible speaks to many ways that we are called to please God, but I'll offer you two essentials, two essential aspects of pleasing God that will bring about the wisdom and knowledge and joy that your heart so longs for. A contrite heart and a saving faith. A contrite heart and a saving faith. Psalm 51, David writes this. David says, you will not delight in sacrifice, O God, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. And so David comes before God and he says, listen, I know being religious, going to church, reading my Bible, doing my ministry, I know that's not going to please you, God. Pure religion alone never pleases God. But he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are this. This is what pleases God. A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You say, I want to please God. I want wisdom and knowledge and joy. That which Colette looked for and could not find, I want. Your heart must be right. Your spirit must be broken. Your heart must be contrite. That means, my beloved, that pride must die. Arrogance must die. You must come before a thrice holy God and say, I'm responsible for my life. I'm responsible for my mess. The reason that work is vexing to me is because I am a sinner. The reason that I'm not pleasing to you now is because I am a sinner. I have rebelled against you, the most glorious one. A broken and contrite heart enters into the presence of God and says, I am a rebellion. You, the good creator, created me and I have rebelled against you. It comes into the presence of God and says, I have not worked for your honor and your glory. I have not loved you or your son with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I have not submitted my life to all your teachings. You come before God like that, and he is pleased. You enter into the throne room with a a broken and contrite spirit and heart. 
taking responsibility for your sin, recognizing the majesty of God, and seeing your role in the mess that has been made. He rejoices in that, and he gives you faith to believe. And that is the second thing I want you to see on how we are to please God. It is a saving faith. A contrite heart and a saving faith brings great joy and pleasure to God. When speaking of the great men and women in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told this. This is from Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, one, that He exists, and two, that He rewards those who seek Him. So the Father pours out the blessings of wisdom and knowledge and joy upon all those who come to Him, all those who seek Him, all those who put their faith and their trust in Him. He finds this pleasing. As sinners, we know, apart from Christ, we cannot please God, for God takes no pleasure in wickedness. Psalm 5, 4. But through faith, that all changes. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to you and he takes your heart of stone, arrogant, prideful, rebellious, and he turns it into a heart of flesh, contrite, broken, filled with grace, filled with love, filled with humility to serve him and to love him. Christ is able to do that because you know this. Jesus Christ perfectly pleased the Father. Christ is able to come to you and give you the faith to believe and impart to you his righteousness because God found Christ perfectly pleasing. You remember his baptism. What did the Spirit descended and a voice from heaven said what? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. No one like Christ pleased the Father. He loved the Son. He rejoiced in the Son. The Son lived the perfect life, the sinless life. And and God the Father says, I love this man. I love his work. It is perfect. It is without blemish. God the Father was infinitely pleased in the Son, in the Son's toilsome work, in the Son's fruitful work. Jesus' work upon the cross was not a work of vanity and striving after the wind, as Cole had argued, but a work that would affirm and uphold the very righteousness of God. Remember, my beloved, God the Father cannot save you, a sinner, and remain righteous unless your sins are punished on someone else. We know this from Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that Jesus died to pay for the sins that were once passed over, the sins committed by the saints of old, The sins of someone like David who committed adultery at Bathsheba and killed Uriah. And then the prophet Nathan comes to David and David says, please forgive me. And God says, your sins have been passed over. We hear that and you say, wait a minute. He can't do that. God can't do that. That man committed adultery. That man committed murder. God is a righteous God. God must judge him. He passed over David and passed over all the sins of all the saints of the Old Testament because they'd be paid for in Jesus Christ. We're also told in Romans 3.26 that God is able to show His righteousness at the present time by crucifying Christ. How? To become the just and the justifier. This is a most important point, my beloved. Don't let theology kind of move right by you. Christ had to die to save even a single soul from hell if God was going to remain righteous. God can't wink at sin. He can't just 
Forgive your sins and let it go. Sin must be paid for. It was paid for in Christ. And that's why the Father says, this man's work is pleasing to me because he can save you, he can save me, he can save people throughout all of human history through the great work of Jesus Christ, the most toilsome work of Jesus Christ. God can save millions, is saving millions, has saved millions. And it means that we don't have to go through this life meaningless and purposeless. We don't have to hear Colette and say, yeah, that's right, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Not in Christ, not in Christ. In Christ, it means you'll be brought in to the presence of God where we are told what? There is the fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore at his right hand. You can be no longer a sinner deserving of punishment, but a sinner saved by grace through the great work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. I don't need to tell you this. You probably already know, but I'll tell you anyway. The ultimate burden borne by any worker was Jesus Christ on the cross when he took your hell. The ultimate burden was borne by him. The ultimate grief and the ultimate sorrow experienced by any human labor was experienced by Christ on the cross when he was separated from the Father. The greatest anxiety that any man has ever experienced over his work was Jesus Christ in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. You remember that night? He cried out to God in the most fervent prayer. Some say sweating blood, say, Lord, if there's any other way, have this cup, the cup of God's wrath, the holy wrath of God that will be poured out upon you and every sinner, if not saved by Christ, was going to be accepted by Christ and received by Christ. That wrath, that cup, of your hell, Christ said, if there's any other way, take it. You know what he was asking? He says, he's saying to the Father, I want to save people too. I, I want a people, I want a church. I want people from every corner of the world, every tribe and every tongue, I want people saved. And I want them to come in and I want those people to, to be in our presence for all eternity, worshiping and glorifying and being glorified. He says, I want that too, Father, but if there's another way, because I can't sleep and I can't pray, if there's another way to do it, please do it. And the Father said what? He said, there is no other way. And Christ said, then thy will be done. So be it. And he went to the cross. And he took the pain. He became our consummate worker. He became the ultimate laborer for you, for mankind. And he took all of this upon himself out of his great love for the Father and out of his great love for you. I love Hebrews 12 too. It says, for the joy set before him, the joy of the Father, the joy of the church, for the joy set before him, he endured the work of the cross, scorning its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? I'm humbled when I think. I'm broken when I think that Christ would die for a sinner like me. It's almost too good to believe. I know why people don't believe. The thought that someone so good and so righteous, so loving and compassionate, the fact that the Son of God, the darling of heaven, would die for a wretched, deplorable man like me is beyond me. But I know it's true. The Bible tells me it's true. My faith tells me it's true. And the Holy Spirit tells me it's true. Christ died so that you might be pleasing to him. Right? 
Wisdom, knowledge, and joy given by God to all those who please God. You say, well, I can't please God. Amen to that. Not in your flesh you cannot, but in Christ you can. Because remember, God looked upon Christ and he looked upon the work of Christ and he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And if he looks upon Christ and he's well pleased with Christ and you're in Christ, guess what? He's well pleased with you. He looks upon you in Christ and says, I'm well pleased with you. Christ finished the work. John chapter 17, verse 4. He said, I have brought, past tense, I have brought you glory, Father, on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And that work was very good. That work was very good. And so by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you become pleasing to the Father. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you come back into the right relationship that God had with Adam and Eve before the fall. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ, listen, this is hard for some of you to believe, right now, at this very moment, the Father looks upon you and he says, I am well pleased. Do you believe that? You said, no, that that can't be, Pastor. You don't know my sin. You don't know my struggles. I don't know yours, but I know mine. And they're infinitely wicked as well. And I know at this very moment in Jesus Christ, I am pleasing to my Father, not because of me, but because of Christ. And if Jesus Christ was perfectly pleasing to him, and and you're in Christ and so are you, you must believe that. You must believe that because if you don't, you will continue to try to work to please your Father. And you'll work and you'll work. And if you think that your temporal work is toilsome, it's nothing like the spiritual work of trying to earn God's favor. That's an impossible task in the flesh. You must know in Christ right now, if you know him, and I mean know him, not just his name, not just going to church, I mean know Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you have him, you are pleasing to God. You can rest. You can rest. And you can work differently. I I, want to close, but I want to tell you how you can work differently. Because this has an immediate impact on our lives. The resting's good, right? The Christian, in terms of earning his salvation, is on a permanent vacation. The Christian is set completely free from trying to make himself right before God because Christ has done that. Christ is pleasing. In Christ, so too are you. So how do we work? Does that mean we can all just go on vacation? Can this Memorial Day become an eternal thing for us here on this side? Can I become slothful and lazy? Of course not. The Bible says you're supposed to work. The Bible says that work is actually good. So I'll give you a few and I'll close. First, you can work not to find your purpose and joy in your labor, like Coalette thought, but you can work because you have it in Christ already. You don't have to make work an idol. Listen, some of you struggle with this. Some of you are hard workers. Your employer loves you, but some of you have idolatry in your work. Some of you are working for your identity and for your joy and for your purpose. Listen to Colette. He's telling you that doesn't work. It is a dead end. Destroy that idol. Instead, have your joy and your satisfaction in Christ. And then you can go to work pre-fall, Genesis 1 and 2, and enjoy it. You can enjoy your work because it is no longer your God. It's no longer your idol. Number two. You can work and remain steadfast even when it becomes toilsome. And it will remain toilsome. B, 
coming to Christ doesn't take away the toilsome nature of work. <laughs> many of you have been in Christ for many years. You said, work's still hard. We're still under that curse. But it does mean this. You can work and not work in vain. In Christ, your work now is totally transformed, and it doesn't matter what you do. Whatever you do that you are doing unto the Lord is not lost. I'll read to you. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a verse you hear oftentimes at funerals, but we don't think of it in the context of work, and yet it was written for workers. Paul writes, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, your work is not in vain. Remember Colette's big struggle? He said, I'm going to die, and everybody's going to get what I worked so hard for. He says, that's not fair. Colette had no sound eschatology. His, his theology on life after death did not match the Bible. You, if you're in Christ, you have victory over death. And not just, it doesn't just mean you're going to be raised from the dead. It means all of your work now, you will not lose this is an incredible point, and I want you to get it. If you have victory in Christ, then when you die, you're just entering into the next stage of eternity with God. The next stage. And that means all that you've done here, all the work, all the labor, all the profit, all the gain, you retain. And not only that, you'll get so much more back. It means that in Christ, you can say this, just as Christ did in John 17, 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. You can say that to God. God's given you work. We know that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that you've been given work to do before the creation of the world. And God says, walk in that work. It's not in vain. It's not meaningless. Even though it's toilsome, it doesn't mean that it's not profitable. If you remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, when you come into the presence of God in Christ, He's not going to say, God's not going to say, vanity, vanity, what a waste of time. He's not going to say that to you. He's going to look at all the work that you did in His name for His glory, and He's going to say, look, look what you did in my Son. Look what you did by the power of the Holy Spirit, and all that work will do what? It will magnify and glorify his name, and he'll take all that work, and he'll magnify and glorify your name. These are crazy thoughts. It means that the work that you do in him, listen, not only is it not done in vain, it will never be lost. The work you do right now in Christ the work you do right now, it doesn't matter what the work is. If, if you are someone who, you open up bank accounts for people, or you, you program software, or you change diapers, or you, you work at a grocery store and you bag groceries, or maybe you sweep streets, or maybe you're an electrician, or maybe you're a plumber, or maybe you're a pastor, it doesn't matter what you do. If the work you do is glorifying to God, listen, that work glorifies Him forever. Do you believe that? The work you do now, it magnifies forever. It never goes away. How glorious is that thought? That's just, well, I, want, I want to work hard. I want to work really hard for God. I want to bring much glory to God because that means it will glorify Him forever. Yes, that's true. Colette's wrong. It's not vanity. It's not meaningless because it never ends for those in Christ. 
That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, the inheritance. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I thought I was serving my boss. You are. You are. You said, I thought I was serving my family. You are. You said, I thought I was serving myself so I could make money and actually eat. You are. True. But ultimately, in all that you do, Jesus Christ is your master. He's your Lord. You serve him first. You serve him first above all else. And that's why Paul says, so when it gets really hard and it gets really difficult and you want to slack off like the rest of your colleagues and you want to get lazy and just not do the work like they're doing, know whom you serve. So if you're working with 10 people, nine are sitting there, leaning upon their shovel, start digging. You're working for Christ. You know, if you're doing that group project, students, and you say, you know what, these are their five students, they're lazy, they're going to ride on my coattails, let them ride on your coattails, do the work, you're working for Christ. And that work lasts forever. And then he says, more specifically, and I love this, you're working for an inheritance, and it's not just your work. He says, you're working for the inheritance. So what's the inheritance? What is the inheritance of the saint? It is Christ. It is the presence of God. It is heaven and earth. It is you ruling once and for all with Jesus Christ over all things. God promises to bless you in Christ with the heavens, the earth, and inheritance that is, Peter says, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, waiting for you in heaven. I'll give you one more and I'll close. It means you should encourage one another to work. Slothfulness is not for the Christian. Laziness is not for the believer. It's so contrary to everything we know to be true. To exercise our God-given responsibility to what? To rule over and subdue the earth. That commandment has not gone away. You have the same commission to rule and to subdue. You say, I feel like I'm the one ruled over and I'm the one that's being subdued. Maybe in part. But whatever you are called to do, you're to have dominion over that. Whatever control God has given you to influence here, you are to rule over that. And we must spur one another on, Hebrews 10, 24, toward love and good deeds. We must not become lazy. We must not make work our idol. Those are the extremes. I'm not going to do anything, and I'm going to work for my own glory. But there's a place, a gospel line in the middle that says, do all for the glory of Jesus Christ. Work hard. My beloved, if you are a Christian at work and your colleagues and boss know that you're a Christian, they should know that you are a hard worker. They should know that you're one of the hardest workers there. Not, to, not for idolatrous purposes, but because you love Christ. They should know that about you. They should see that in your life. It means that we've got to encourage one another to that end. There's still so much slothfulness in the church. Husbands and wives, be really careful on this as well. I've, I've heard wives often complain about their husbands working. I've heard this. Now, men, if you have made work an idol, then you need to identify that, mortify that idol. But you are called to work hard. You're called to support your family. So wives, be the helpmate. Encourage your husband. Encourage them to work hard. Not so they sacrifice you or the children, but to do the job God's called them to do. Be that right helpmate. Tell them to be the workman approved by God in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Encourage them to that end. And men, I would say the same for you. If your wives have the luxury 
the great blessing of staying at home and raising the children and being a homemaker, do not diminish the ruling over of that home, the, the subduing of that home by your wives. That's what they've been commissioned to do. That is their job to God. That's how they're going to bring God glory. And it is equally important to whatever your job is, that subduing and ruling in the home. Equally important. I had a brother whose wife did not see her role as a homemaker in light of the gospel of grace. She had, they had young children. She had come out of industry where she was doing very well, and she was staying at home to submit to Christ, to love her husband, to love her children, hard labor. She wanted to go back to industry. I get it. Moms, home, children, hard labor, vexing, glorious work, but hard. He would come home, and he would enter the house, and the house was a mess. The children were disheveled. Dishes were in the sink. There was no plan for dinner, and he thought his loving response was this, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. So she thought, I won't worry about it. It's no big deal. By God's grace, he counseled himself, and he realized this was not a right response. This was glorious to God, if done in a manner pleasing to God. He said, and he thought to himself, just as when I go to work, I work for the glory of God, so too when she is at home doing her work, she's to work to the glory of God. And so he sought her forgiveness, and he says, no, I need to help you. I need to help you be the best homemaker you can be. And he did, and things changed, and their home changed, and she was able to do all things to the glory of God too. All right. Do not let work become burdensome. Do not let work become anxious for you. Keep your focus on Christ. And remember this, the ultimate work was done by him. He imparted that to you. Your standing right now is perfection in God. You are righteous before God right now. Know that. Go to work. Do the work God's called you to do. Do it with all your might. Work hard for his glory and enjoy it. Enjoy the fact that you can work. Enjoy the fact that you live in a country where you can get a job and make money and put food on the table. Enjoy that. Rejoice in it. And never, ever forget, when it gets really hard, when you are suffering for the Lord, even after a 14-hour day, it's not done in vain. You are storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You are storing up for God glory that goes on forever. You are storing up for yourself an inheritance kept in heaven for you. So commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 16, 13. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it might be best for us to begin by confessing that we are more like Kohelet. We look upon the toil and the anxiety that work produces in our lives and we say vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless, chasing after the wind. Eradicate those foolish thoughts. They are foolish. Enable us to see that Jesus Christ completed the work that we were supposed to do on the cross for us. Help us to see that he imparted that work to us that we stand before you in Christ right now, if we are saved by grace, we are pleasing to you now, and therefore we have received the wisdom and the knowledge and joy of Christ himself. Show us that, I pray. 
and then set our feet and our hands to the, to the plow that we might be faithful laborers in this kingdom. Let us be about our work, Lord. Let us be about doing the very things that you've called us to do. And you've called each person here, all my brothers and sisters, to do work. Let them do it with great joy, I pray. Let them do it seeing that they're bringing you great honor and glory. And let them be faithful until you call them home, until you end the toil here. We ask, Father, that you be glorified in the work of this church, that you would bless us as a body of Christ, and that as we labor for the gospel of grace here in the Cambrian Park community, that you would see that our labor is not in vain, and that you would bear much fruit from that, Father. Let a revival begin here. Let many unsaved come to a saving grace through the gospel testimony that comes out of this church, I pray. And let your son be honored in it all. Let him receive all the glory and all the honor and all the power, both now and forever. In his name I pray, amen.